We will be in Hebrews chapter 12 today, verses 12 through 17. As Aaron first came up to uh, uh, discuss our missions moments for today, and he said, did you notice the security cameras around the room? Uh, you probably didn't. I immediately thought, yeah, cell phones. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that maybe is the conspiracy theorist in me that was coming out a little too hard. That was before I knew where he was going with that. Um, but Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be today. Hebrews chapter 12. I think this is a great passage, particularly in light of what Aaron just shared with us today and the church persecuted. Uh, we do live in a, in a time and place here in the United States where persecution is not something that we face the way the church at large does. And we be, can become um, ignorant to that and even numb to the reality of persecution that the church faces around the world. Uh, but today we have what I think to be a, a word of comfort both to us, but even and especially to churches that are facing persecution in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. If you would, church family, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we come today to this passage, Lord, to this text in which we receive uh, encouragement, in which we receive imperatives, for the Christian life. And Lord, we ask today that as we study this word that you would guide us, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, would direct us in our understanding of this text, and that for all those who are here in this place today who know you as their Lord and Savior, that this text might serve for them as an encouraging, an encouraging word, as an uh, encouraging command from a, from a faithful father. And Lord, for those in this place who don't know you, who don't know what it is to trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would see their need of a Savior today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I uh, was getting ready for the sermon today and uh, studying this text, my, my title for today is Clear Commands for Faithful Living. Clear, clear Commands for Faithful Living. Because I believe that is what we have before us today in our text. We have received from the Holy Spirit today in Hebrews chapter 12 clear commands given to us as believers, as Christians, as those running the race, commands that we need. We need to be given commands. I am a, a fan of board games to an extent, but I have a brother-in-law who is a huge fan of board games. A fan of board games to the point that every time we are around my brother-in-law, we are learning a new board game. And it's never a simple board game either. I think he, he especially loves the board games that are the most complicated and the most difficult to learn. 
which is why it's always exciting to get there and get to learn a new board game every time we are around my brother-in-law. As my brother-in-law is going through the, the, the examples, as he's teaching us this board game, as he is running us through the instructions on how to play this game, how to understand it, um, as you know, if you've ever tried to explain a board game to somebody or have one explained to you, it's a very tedious thing. It is very tedious to be told all the details, what all the different pieces mean, when they all work, when they can be played, what this card means, what this card means in this situation. All of these details that go into these extensive board games, even board games that are relatively simple and well-known like Monopoly. You can take a game like Monopoly and explain it and explain it and explain it. But eventually, whoever you're explaining this board game to is going to say the same thing I always say whenever a board game is being explained to me. Just tell me what to do. That's always what it comes down to. You can explain it until you are blue in the face, but oftentimes what we really need in order to understand how the game is played is simply to be told what to do. Tell me what to do and when to do it. That's why I think it's a, it's a helpful thing for us today to be given this text here in Hebrews chapter 12, where the Holy Spirit is, uh, after giving us examples to follow as believers, after explaining to us what we have in Christ Jesus, how we have the mediator that, that is for us access to God, that we have the means to run the Christian race and what it means to be forgiven of our sin, to be cleansed of our unrighteousness and have our iniquities washed away. The author has gone through all of this painstakingly for the past 11 chapters but now we come to the point when there is not all that much more to be said about the ins and outs not all that much more to be said in way of explanation of how it is that we are to how it is that we are able to run this race but now we come to the point where the author says here are your commands here are your marching orders the answer to the question just tell me what to do comes here in Hebrews chapter 12, and it comes at the perfect point after we have been given in Hebrews 11 all the examples to follow, and namely in Hebrews chapter 12, the example of Jesus Christ himself, we are left asking, what must I do to follow Christ well? And the answer comes in our text today, starting in verse 12, and I want us to look at these commands. We're given five commands in this passage Five commands for Christian living that come from the Holy Spirit for us today. And I want us to look at each one of them individually and consider them and how we can walk in them. And we start with verses 12 and 13. And the first command that we are, go that we are given, the command to keep going. In verses 12 through 13, the author takes us back to the analogy of a, of a runner, of an athlete. And he says, therefore, therefore, indicating what he has just told us. He has told us about the discipline of God that is going to come, the discipline that often comes by way of persecution in the world, recognition of the difficulty of this life, of the difficulty of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He says now, after illustrating that point well, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Right off the bat, the very first command that we are given in this list is a command that ought to resonate with us. Because built into these two verses, built into this command, is a recognition, an acknowledgement 
of the difficulty of the Christian race. The difficulty of running the race that has been set before us. The Holy Spirit, as he is writing to us here through the author of Hebrews, is by no means ignorant to the difficulties that Christians face. He's acknowledging the difficulties we face. He is acknowledging the difficulties of what it means to follow Christ Jesus. And in the midst of the difficulty, we are given this encouragement to keep running. This encouragement that we are given, this command we are given is based on Isaiah 35, 3-4, where the prophet Isaiah writes, and he's writing to the Israelites, the people of God in exile, and he writes to them something very similar when he says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, he says in Isaiah 35, 3. And then he follows that up in verse 4 and says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and he will save you. Given the context from which this passage we have here in Hebrews is drawn from Isaiah 35. It's reasonable for us to understand then that the promises of God that are given to the exiles in the book of Isaiah through the prophet Isaiah are relevant for Christians today as well. That the, the command that he gives through the prophet Isaiah to strengthen weak hands, to make feeble knees is true and is is needed of us as well as the encouragement that is given them to be strong, to fear not, that he will come and save you. You see, we too, as Christians today in this life, as Christians today in this world, recognize that we are participants in two kingdoms. This is what the, the uh, St. Augustine said when he wrote The City of God. This is the point he was making, that, that we are living right now as Christians... In two kingdoms. We belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom that we are in now and yet will see come to fruition in the day of the Lord. And yet what we also know to be true of us is that we are still living in this earthly kingdom. That we are dual citizens. One of a heavenly kingdom and one of an earthly kingdom. And so long as we find ourselves here as a part of this earthly kingdom, we find ourselves as strangers. Exiles in search of a promised land. And just as the exiles in the book of Isaiah were promised land and were brought out and were brought to the land that God had given them, we too can trust that we have been promised land, that we have been promised blessing. We can trust in the promise of God that is ours, that we see come to fruition at the end of the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth that all who are in Christ will one day participate in and rejoice in and find rest in. But until then, we find ourselves like the people of Israel in exile, strangers, wanderers in a foreign land. Yet we look forward to the day when we will enjoy God's rest, when we will enjoy his presence. But as long as we are here on this earth, we are called to run. We are called to press on. We are called to keep, don't keep going. But we know that running this race is very, very difficult at times. And the author knows that, which is why he is giving us this command. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. If you've ever run a, a long distance run, then you know how powerful encouragement like this can be 
I've often talked about running a, running a half marathon. And some of the most difficult portions of the race are the middle sections near the end. For a few reasons. For one thing, there are very few spectators along these portions of the race. Most people are either parked at the beginning or parked at the end, but there are oftentimes large sections of long races where there is nobody. It's just you and the pavement and perhaps other runners around you. But for me as a runner, I can attest to the fact that every time I come up on an individual, on a spectator, and that person, I don't even have to know that person, but if that person gives me a clap and says, you can do it, keep going, man, there's something about that encouragement, something about that, that command, that imperative that says, you know what, I can do it, I will keep going. And oftentimes that gives me just that little extra bit of energy that I need to make it to the next spot. The same is true for us as Christians. All of us have experienced times in our lives, or we are now, when the race becomes very difficult, when our hands begin to droop and our knees begin to become weak, and we are in need of encouragement. And here the encouragement comes for us. The encouragement comes telling us, keep going, do not stop. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. We are given this command, but we also know that we are not given this command without the ability to do so. For those who are running the Christian race, for those who are members of the household of God, we know that God has given us not only commands to endure, not only commands to strengthen our knees and to lift our drooping hands, but He has given us the ability to do so. He has empowered us with the Holy Spirit. He has given us the Word of God to show us all that we need and to sustain us in this life. All that we have is granted to us as Christians, as followers of Christ, so that we can take this command, this command to keep running, this command to lift our heads, lift our hands, and we can do something with it because we have given, been given all that we need to do so. The Lord is telling His people here who are in the midst of the race of their lives, I know it is hard. I know it's difficult. I know you want to give up, but don't. Don't give in. Don't stop. Keep on running. This is the first imperative that we are given in our list of commands here in Hebrews 12. Keep going. The second imperative we're given, the second command for faithful living is to pursue peace and holiness. We see this command in verse 14 of our text. The Holy Spirit says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This word strive that the author gives in Hebrews 12, 14 is an important word. It's a word that matters, that we need to recognize as it's something more than just give it the old college try. It's something more than, hey, peace is pretty cool, just give it a shot. Rather, this word strive means that we are to be dedicated. It involves with it the, the idea of even straining and suffering in pursuit of this thing. It means to have a dedication wholly to this task, entirely to the task that we are called to. So therefore, to see that we are to strive for peace means that we are to even struggle in order to obtain peace with everyone. We are to obtain peace with those around us, even when it is hard, even when it is difficult. 
And the question we need to ask ourselves is, how often do we strive for peace? How often are we willing to strive, even to the point of it being uncomfortable or painful or difficult for the sake of peace? And we are commanded to strive for peace, not just with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just with those here in this room today, but with everyone. We are called to strive for peace with everyone. And peace is often not easy to obtain. At times, it's not even possible to obtain. But even so, peace is to be the default posture of the Christian. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We know that there will be those who refuse to live peaceably with us, who refuse peace as hard as we might try to achieve it. But even so, the text says, so long as it depends on you, strive for peace. Pursue peace. This is what we are called to do as Christians. And this is a difficult task, especially when peace is not something other people want. Yet peace and holiness are not optional add-ons to the Christian life. They are attributes that mark the lives of all who enter into the gates of heaven. Peace and holiness. We hear a, a verse like this, the second half of verse 14, where the Holy Spirit says, after he says, strive for peace with everyone, he says, and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. We hear a, a phrase like this, and it kind of sometimes goes against our grain, doesn't it? We hear a phrase like this, and it makes us think, Wait a second, wait a second, that's not right. We're saved through faith alone. We are not saved through sanctification, through a holiness that we pursue and we achieve in and of ourselves. We are saved through faith alone. Faith is the thing without which no one will see the Lord. I think that's, that's where my mind goes when I hear a, a text like this, a verse like this. But we have to ask ourselves, has there ever been anyone who has seen the Lord without holiness? Or will ever see the Lord without holiness? The text is clear. The answer is no. Without holiness, no one has ever and no one will ever see the Lord. But that does not undo the truth of the gospel. Justification by faith alone. That is not undone by what this text says, that holiness is something that without which no one will see the Lord. To say that no one will see the Lord without holiness is simply to recognize that saving faith and holiness, sanctification that results from saving faith, are never separate. But they always come together. There has never been anyone who has been justified by their faith and not ultimately been sanctified by God. There is not anyone in here today who has a right standing before God being justified by grace alone through faith alone that the Lord is not now calling to pursue holiness and working it in them. Holiness is something that without which no one will see the Lord. As the great reformer Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. When we hear a passage like this, a 
verse like this, we ought to be reminded of this reality. That though we are justified, we are saved by faith alone. The faith that saves us is never a faith that is alone. This is clear in James. Therefore, we are called as Christians that this ought to mark our lives. We are to pursue peace with other people and holiness before God. The third command that we are given is we are called in the beginning of verse 15 to take hold of grace. Take hold of grace. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is an interesting phrase that the author uses here. See to it that no one, that no one should fail to obtain the grace of God. The meaning of this phrase could be one of two possibilities. And there are, are theologians and, and pastors and preachers on both sides who have come to different opinions on this passage and how it ought to be interpreted the first meaning could have to do with the neglecting of the means of grace that God has given us, that the Lord has given us, specifically that he has given us through his church. The means of grace, the common means of grace of the preaching of the word of God, of the taking of the Lord's Supper and the celebrating of what Christ has done for us in that way. The reading of scripture, the prayer, the fellowship of believers. As Christians, we have the grace of God and salvation. But the sustaining grace of God that gives us, uh, gives us the power and the strength that we need in order to run this race is found in these means, in the preaching of the word, in prayer, in the fellowship of the saints, and in the spiritual disciplines. In this sense, it's a possible, it is possible for a Christian to fail to obtain the grace of God and to struggle in their race. To neglect the means of grace that God has given us will serve you very little good in your Christian race, in your walk with the Lord. In fact, your walk will be nothing but difficult, nothing but sorrow-filled, nothing but stumbling if you neglect the means of grace that God has given us. So this is, a, this is a truly reality of believers if we understand the text this way. But there's another possibility of how we can understand this phrase, and, and I think this is probably more in line with the author of Hebrews would have for us to see you see, this verse sounds very similar to what the author of Hebrews said back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The idea that the author of Hebrews is writing for us there in, in Hebrews 3, and I think the way we ought to probably understand this passage is that it seems to be the author warning against apostasy, warning against letting go of the grace that is there to save us. As he wrote in Hebrews 6, there is a possibility and in fact, it was probably true of some there in Hebrews, in the, in the church that he is writing to. And it is probably true of some here in our church today, that there are those who can come and be a part of the church fellowship, that can see the grace of God on display, that can even see the benefits and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers, that can even to a sense become enlightened to the reality of spiritual things 
in Christ Jesus and yet ultimately never obtain true saving faith, never truly trust in the God who can save them in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. This is what we call apostasy. Those who have the appearance of salvation but never have truly obtained it. This is a very real threat and the one that the author of Hebrews writes about repeatedly. And here is something we need to notice. Whose responsibility is it to guard against this failing to obtain grace? Well, the passage says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The indication of this passage is that it is the responsibility of all believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ to look out for one another, to tell one another the good news of the gospel, to push one another towards the scriptures, to remind one another of the grace of God in Christ Jesus so that none may fail to obtain it. It is our responsibility. It is a communal care for one another that is being called for here. So how can we see to it that no one fails to obtain it? By utilizing the means of grace that God has given us. The preaching of the gospel, prayer, the communion of saints, and the like. And it is the responsibility of all of us to do that for one another. What this means is that when we are around our brothers and sisters in Christ, what ought we be doing to encourage them? What are we encouraging them with the gospel? What ought we be doing if we are around those who are not saved, who are not a part of the church? We ought to be telling them the gospel. Either way, the gospel is the answer. For to those who are being saved, it is good news. It is encouraging. And to those who are perishing, it is the news that they so desperately need to hear. So the question maybe we ought to ask ourselves is, how often, even as brothers and sisters in Christ, together... How often are we setting our mind, are we setting our attention on the good news of the gospel, on the means of grace that God has given us? I would argue the answer for most of us is not nearly often enough, not nearly as often as we should be. And when this happens, when we fail to look out for one another, when we fail to see that everyone obtains the grace of God, what happens? Well, the text tells us that issues such as in the second half of the verse, will begin to take root issues such as bitterness, which leads us to the next command that we are given, root out bitterness. In the second half of verse 15, the Holy Spirit says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many, many become defiled. This is the next, next order of things that he commands them to see to. He says, see to it not only that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, but also that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Notice then the potential. In fact, the inevitable outcome that will result if bitterness is allowed to take root. Many will become defiled. This speaks to the severely destructive nature of bitterness in the life of the church and the life of a Christian. I think the description of bitterness as a, as a root is an apt picture of exactly how bitter, bitterness grows and the, damage from the, the, and the damage that it spreads. Think about the comparison of, of bitterness being like a root. Bitterness, like a root, oftentimes grows 
underneath the surface. It is very easy, especially at first, for those who are harboring bitterness in their hearts towards one another or towards an individual, for it to go unnoticed. It is very easy for us to do that. The beginnings of it, for many of us, might already be there. And a good way to test this out is just to ask yourself the question, who came to your mind when I said bitterness is something that we oftentimes hold on to? Is there anyone that comes to your mind that you know the root of bitterness is beginning to develop? If that is the case, recognize it is very easy for that bitterness to grow and for no one to know about it. Therefore, the call for us today, Christians, is to root it out now. Be rid of it. Because just like a root, as bitterness grows, it spreads. And it affects all areas of our lives and even affects those around us. Though bitterness is easy to hide and it grows under the surface at the beginning before too long, before we even realize it oftentimes, bitterness has spread even beyond ourselves and is affecting the lives of those around us. One way that we see bitterness manifesting itself is in the way of gossip. Each and every one of us in here knows the ease, knows the temptation, knows how easy it is to fall into gossip and slander. To talk about those who maybe we might not think we are bitter against, but when we talk about them with other people, what is coming out of our mouths? Is it encouraging talk? Is it gracious? Is it kind? Is it brotherly? Is it affectionate? Or when we talk about other people, is it something that drags them down? Is it something that slanders? Is it something that tears and cuts? See, it does not take long at all for bitterness to spread. And just like plant root systems, it can do a serious amount of damage. Many a flower garden has been overrun by roots of weeds and and flowers and dandelions and that which doesn't belong there. And it's not very hard for those good plants to be choked out, to be robbed of nutrients because of the weeds and the roots that have taken over. And for those of us as Christians here today, we recognize that for the church, bitterness can very easily and quickly disrupt godly unity. What Christ prayed for when he prayed in John chapter 17, that they might be one as you and I are one as he prayed to the Father. That very unity that Christ prayed for before he died on the cross is in jeopardy when we allow bitterness to develop, when we allow it to spread. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, bitterness is kind of the next phase of that living peaceably with all people. But I think one of the easiest times for bitterness to come in, for bitterness to take root, is when we as Christians seeking to do what God has commanded us to do, try and live peaceably with all people, we seek with our peace with our brothers, with our sisters, or with the world around us. And if that person refuses, if that person rejects our peace, but rather seeks to live in enmity with us and angry towards us and bitter with us and maybe even persecute us and despise us, what we do next will largely determine whether or not bitterness will take root in that situation. It would be very easy in that moment to say, you know what? I'll live peaceably with you, but that doesn't mean I have to like you. And in that moment, bitterness begins to take root in our heart. We can think that we are living peaceably while, yes, outwardly we're not having any 
open disagreements or open hostility with those around us, yet inwardly bitterness is quickly and rapidly spreading and taking root. Brothers and sisters, the sin of bitterness is just as destructive as any sin is and is to be rooted out at the first sign of it. For indeed, the longer that bitterness is allowed to take root, the harder it is for those roots to come out. The harder it is and more painful it is and more traumatic it is for those roots to be removed. But yet, this is what we are called to do. Root out bitterness and do so in the early stages. Do not even give it opportunity. Finally, the last command that we're given here in Hebrews 12. We are commanded, gratify the desires of the spirit, not the flesh. Verses 16 and 17 take us all the way back to the book of Genesis, the example of Esau that we are given here. Where the author says, again, I'm going to add this because he is, he is continuing on his command to see to it, where he started in verse 15. He says now, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Here we're presented with this example of Esau. And unlike all the Old Testament characters that we are given, all the Old Testament examples that were given throughout Hebrews chapter 11, and certainly in the example of Christ, we're presented now with Esau Not as an example for us to follow, but as an example for us of what not to do. An example for us not to follow. For what happened in the case of Esau? If you have heard the story, then you might be familiar with with the story of Esau and Jacob. And Esau, one day after being out in the field, he was tired and he was hungry. And he came to Jacob as Jacob was cooking some food, some red stew of some sort. And Esau comes and he says to Jacob, please give me some of your food, some of your stew so that I might eat. And Jacob tells Esau, he deceives him, he he tricks him, he manipulates him. He says, I will give you some of this food, but only if you in exchange give me your birthright. And this is where Esau, Esau makes the decision that demonstrates his willingness to gratify the flesh rather than the spirit. When Esau, in this moment, was ruled by his physical appetite, in a moment of hunger, he was willing to forfeit his heritage, forfeit his birthright, all for one lousy meal. And like Esau, there is a temptation for us to let our fleshly desires rule over us rather than the spirit. Though this can manifest itself in many ways, undeniably, as the text shows us here, there is one particular way in which the writer would have us to watch out for especially. And that we see in verse 16 is the danger of sexual sin. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You see, sexual immorality is perhaps the most graphic and clear example of gratifying the flesh rather than the spirit. And with it comes grave consequences. We know from what Paul says that all other sins a man commits outside of his body, but sexual sin a man commits against his own body, against the temple of the Lord. And there is no sin as destructive. Destructive both 
personally, but destructive to relationships and to the community around us as that of sexual sin, of gratifying the flesh in this way. We are called to see the example of Esau and to turn from it, to turn away from his example and do what is right, to gratify the spirit rather than the desires of the flesh. Esau and his gratification of his flesh and his desire demonstrated where his heart, where his allegiance truly lied. And it was not with the promises of God, but with his own desires. Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel, describes repentance in the life of a Christian. And he describes it as a cosmic choosing of sides. I think this is a helpful description of what it means to repent of sin. For oftentimes we think of repentance as simply not doing that sin. If you are repentant, then you are one who is not doing that thing. And therefore, if you do sin, then you are not repentant. We think of repentance oftentimes wrongly. But I think a more helpful way to think about repentance is in this way that, that Greg Gilbert lies out for us. That to be repentant of sin, to have repentance by the Holy Spirit work in us, means that our desires have been changed. Means that though we still have the flesh waging war against us, though those desires remain, we see these desires, we see these sinful, these, that we see our sinful flesh as the enemy. We see it as God does. When repentance is working within us, then we love the things that God loves and we hate the things that God hates. We are like Paul in Romans chapter 7. We feel the war being waged within us. And so often we know that we fall short. We know that we fail. But we are called in this passage, in our chapter today, not to let the example of Esau mark our lives, but to seek to gratify the spirit rather than the desires of the flesh. So the next question becomes then, what is it that you love and what is it that you hate? If you are like Esau, then you love the flesh and you despise the promises of God. And you are willing and freely in indulging the desires of the flesh. But that is not what we are called to as Christians. In the spirit, we are called and we are empowered to hate our sin and the desires of our flesh. And we are to wage war against them, seeking not to gratify those desires, but to gratify the spirit and serve the spirit. As we come to a, a close today, we've been given these commands in these verses. And it is now our responsibility to follow these commands. And these commands seem simple enough in a lot of ways to follow. The command to lift our drooping head, strengthen our weak knees. The command to keep running is simple enough in itself. To strive for peace and for holiness and pursue these things, that is a, a relatively simple command. To look out for one another, to see that we do not fail to obtain the grace of God. To root out bitterness and get rid of that. To pursue holiness and put off immorality, particularly sexual immorality. These are relatively straightforward and simple commands in and of themselves, and yet so often we find them hard to follow. In the sport of rock climbing, in the most traditional kind of rock climbing, there are 
there are two people involved in the task of, of rock climbing. There is the person climbing who is making his way up the rocks, and then there is the person that is operating the belay. If you don't know what that is, that is simply the device on the ground that someone operates uh, in order to make sure if the person climbing falls, that the rope catches them. The rope runs from the person climbing over the loop at the top or wherever they're climbing from, and then is attached to the belay on the ground. And the belay person is a very, very important person. And in order for the belay person to be effective, it has to be someone that is trustworthy. Because one malfunction, one misstep, and belaying your partner on that rocks can lead to serious injury or even death. And when you're rock climbing, the, uh, there is a moment in rock climbing. Say you finish the route and you get all the way to the top and you never did have to rely on the rope that is attached to you. There comes a moment in the, in the exchange of commands given between the climber and the person operating the belay on the ground in which the climber at the top offers down a command, says, take. And that's when the person on the ground is to pull all the slack out of the rope and to tighten it down on the belay. And then the next command that follows comes from the person operating the belay up to the climber, and they say, sit back. That is a very simple command. Simply sit back. And yet for many first-time climbers, or if you have a person operating the belay at the bottom that you don't necessarily trust all that much, that can sometimes be a very difficult command to follow, to sit back. You are putting your life in their hands and in the hands of that piece of machinery that you hope they know how to operate. And in that moment, what is demonstrated by your sitting back onto that rope, trusting in not only that harness and that rope, but that person down below you to catch you and to lower you safely to the ground to know what they are doing Obedience to that command is a demonstration of trust in that person. And so when we see the commands of God that are given here, the commands to put off unrighteousness, to put off sinful desires, to root out bitterness, to live peaceably with one another, these relatively simple commands, so oftentimes we fail to follow them because of our wicked hearts, because of our pride. The question we need to ask ourselves then in not following these commands is, why not? I would propose that the answer is the same as to the person who refuses to sit back upon the belay order to sit back. It's because we don't trust that the Lord is good. We don't trust that, that what he is commanding us to do will ultimately result in something better for us, that will ultimately result, result in us running the race better and us experiencing more joy, more peace, more grace in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you today, church family, trust in Christ. He's got you. He is worthy of our trust, and we can obey these commands even when it is hard, even when we would rather not live peaceably with that person, even when bitterness is something we would rather hold on to than get rid of, even when humility is oftentimes what we are called to, but what we feel like is too difficult. Do you trust in God, and do you trust in Him enough to obey his commands. I want to be very clear about this passage that we have studied this morning. Because we want to be careful not to think of these verses, these imperatives, these commands given in this passage and consider them as a recipe to create a Christian. That is what we call moralism. And we know that no one becomes a Christian, no one comes 
to Christ by obedience to commands. Never has anyone come to the Lord Jesus, been saved, because they followed this list of do's and don'ts. The point of this text and my message today is not to say, do these things, obey these commands, and you will be saved. That is a misuse of this text. That would be a gross misunderstanding and would preclude all that has come before in the book of Hebrews. All that we have seen about how it is that Christ redeems us, how he washes us, cleanses us, and draws us near to God, not by works done in us, but by the great high priest who is interceding for us in spite of our wickedness. This passage here for us today is for Christians who have come to faith in Christ, who are trusting in him today. This is not a recipe for a Christian. From even the very first word of our passage today, we see that these are marching orders given to enlisted soldiers. Those who belong to the Lord, who are children of God already, who as we talked about last week, he is disciplining, he is chastising, he is growing into what he would call us to be. So the last thing I would conclude with saying here today is, church family, if you are here in this place today and you have been seeking to live according to these kinds of standards in order that you might be a Christian, in order that you might be saved, in order that you might somehow make yourself right before God, you have misunderstood this kind of text. There's only one thing that can make us right before God, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Because when we see this list, we know how many of us have lived out this list perfectly. None of us. Not a one of us has even lived out one aspect of these commands perfectly. And yet God is gracious enough to offer us his mercy and offer us his forgiveness each and every time we stumble, each and every time our hands begin to sag and our knees become weak. And we can obey the command that he has given us to run and run well because he is a trustworthy God who has demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus. So therefore, church family, trust in the promises of God and obey his commands today. Let's pray.